You know, our perspective is important when seeking to understand something. I like the feature on Google Earth, which provides this panoramic view or the big picture of our world, and then it allows us to zoom in on the exact address we're looking for. The first chapter of Genesis, along with the first three verses of chapter 2, provides the big picture of how God created the heavens and the earth, and then how he finished it and furnished it. And then when we arrive in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, we're able to zoom in and look at the specifics. We're going to get a close-up of what God did on the sixth day when he created man and woman. Now, this simple explanation helps counter the claim of liberal theologians who allege that the first two chapters of Genesis contain two contradictory creation stories. Not so. You see, when understood correctly, these accounts are complementary, not conflictive. To say it another way, Genesis 1 tells us that man and women were created. Chapter 2 tells us how it all happened. Chapter 3 is about the entrance of sin, and chapter 4 shows how sin expands and spreads in the world. We could say chapter 2, then, serves as the link between creation and corruption. Well, let's give our attention to this breathtaking section of Scripture. I'm going to invite you to stand if you're able, and let's read Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 9 together, being reminded that these are the very words of God. We serve a God who's revealed himself to us. And so we approach this time reverently and with great rejoicing. And we're reminded that God's word is inspired, it's inerrant, and it's authoritative. Let's read together, beginning in verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was coming up from the land, and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature." And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You can be seated. Thanks for reading that together. The main character of the grand story of the Bible is God. And Genesis is all about who God is and what he has done. We could summarize the text we just read like this. God created every person on purpose, and he put us 
in a place to live out his purposes. We'll use that summary as our outline. First then, God created every person on purpose. Let me draw your attention to verse 4 because it sets the context. It signals the start of the first major narrative section in Genesis. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. That word generations speaks of lineage, history, families. God loves to do his work through families. We've said this before, but in our culture, we have to keep saying it. Genesis is not a fable. This is not a myth. This is a factual record of how God worked in history. That phrase, the generations of, is used 10 other times in Genesis to indicate a new family, a real family that God focuses on. Let me just share three of those examples. If you look over at chapter 5, verse 1, this is the book of the generations of Adam. And then chapter 10, verse 1, these are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And then the middle of the book of Genesis, chapter 25, verse 19, these are the generations of Isaac. That phrase, in the day, shows that this is a close-up, a zoomed-in examination of day six of creation. It's like a recap with a number of additional details. I do want to point out another distinction between chapter 1 and chapter 2, which critics have used as ammunition. You see, many liberal theologians argue that Moses was not the author of Genesis. And some of those theologians hold to the documentary hypothesis, or perhaps you've heard it, the JDEP theory. And what they're doing is marginalizing, minimizing the Genesis account. And here's how they argue it, because different names for God are used in the first two chapters. For instance, the first, the J of J-D-E-P stands for Jehovah or Yahweh. That's called the Yahwist. And the E refers to Elohist. Elohim, oh, but I can't wait to invite you to worship as we look at a wonderful explanation for this. In Genesis chapter 1, the name used for God is Elohim. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, we're introduced to a compound name, Yahweh Elohim. That's translated as Lord God in English. You look down at your Bible when the word Lord in all capital letters, L-O-R-D, all capital letters, that's showing Yahweh. Well, I know Edgewood is a church that likes to go deeper. So journey with me now into these names of God, Elohim. This name comes from a word meaning to fear. It signifies the highest being to be revered. This name is in the plural, giving early evidence for the Trinity. 
Elohim is intensive. It indicates God's fullness of power. The beginning letters, E-L, signifies that he is the strong God. He is majestic. He is mighty. This name emphasizes God's power as the infinitely great and exalted one, the one who created the heavens and the earth. This name for God, Elohim, is used 31 times in 31 verses in Genesis chapter 1. Second name, Yahweh. This is the personal name for God. This name was revealed to Moses. Exodus chapter 3, God is giving Moses direction, commands. Moses is like, I don't want to do it, God. I don't speak really well. And besides that, I don't want to do it. And by the way, if I were to do it, nobody's going to listen to me. And if I were to do it, who should I tell the people is sending me? In other words, God, what is your name? What should I tell them? And God said, I am who I am. That's the name Yahweh or Jehovah. He is the self-existent, self-determining one, the absolute being of all beings who is also personal. All right, so watch this. The compound name for God, Yahweh Elohim, they're used together, is found 20 times in Genesis chapters 2 and 3. And when they're put together like that, they make this massive theological point. Oh, I invite you to worship because we're reminded that God is powerful and he's personal. He's the creator who makes and he is the covenant maker who keeps his promises. He is transcendent and holy and tenderhearted. He is mighty and he's merciful. He is eminent and he's intimate. He is sovereign and he is savior. He is majestic and you and I who know him through the new birth can say he is mine. Now, when those two names are used together, and you'll find them throughout Scripture, we should be thinking of both of those, power and personal. They're used in a number of different ways and places, but one that comes to my mind is 1 Kings. Uh, We read this, and when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces, and they said, the Lord That's Yahweh. He is God, Elohim, the Lord, Yahweh. He is God, Elohim. You might want to write this down. If you don't write it down, remember this. The God who creates is also the God who relates. Interestingly, These two names for God are used throughout Genesis 2 and 3, except when the serpent tempts Eve. In Genesis chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, where you'll see that both Eve and the serpent only refer to him as Elohim. Now, why? 
Well, I have a theory. Satan didn't want Eve to focus on God being compassionate and relational as nearby. He wanted Eve to think of God as this distant creator who might have started everything, but he doesn't really care about people anymore. Boy, there's a whole sermon begging to be preached on that idea, but let's wait for another time. Genesis 4 through 7 then make up One long sentence in Hebrew. Verses 5 and 6 provide a flashback to the condition of the earth before people were created when there was no bush, no small plant, no rain, no man to work the ground. It's as if the world was waiting for man to come and to rule, to subdue and cultivate the creation. The earth needed an earthling to bring order and shape to it. Ah, so the perspective has narrowed. We're zooming in, and we see the need for someone to care for the land, and we've zoomed into one spot on planet Earth where you and I get a front row seat to the creation of one man whose name is Adam. Listen then to verse 7, which is one of the most intimate scenes in the entire Bible. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. There are at least three truths about human beings taught in the book of beginnings. First of all, we come from dust. We're derived from dust. Genesis 3.19 says, and to dust you shall return. (laughs) That should keep us humble. I appreciate the insight from one pastor. We would do well to remember that in our dealings with one another, no one is made from super dust. No one can say, well, I'm made from diamond dust. We're all made from the same hunk of dirt. We should not be surprised when we act like clods. <laughs> I'm not going to repeat that if you missed it, sorry. Because that's all we were in the first place. Hey, that means none of us should be boasting. Boast about your body. Boast about what you have. When everything you have is a gift from God. We're all made from dust and dirt. We should be hushed in amazement that we are made in the image of God and therefore we have value and worth and dignity and we should be humbled by our earthiness. This week I read an article describing how much the human body would be worth if it was broken down into its constituent elements. So if you figure the amounts of iron, carbon, phosphorus, sodium, calcium, potassium, magnesium, and chlorine that make up our bodies, at today's market prices, the total comes to about (laughs) $4.50. Think about that. You're worth five bucks with 50 cents to spare. (laughs) We're just dust in the wind. Oh, I know where some of you went. You went back to 1977 when Kansas sang a hit song that I won't sing for you today. 
But I went back to my junior year in high school when that song was a hit, and it was the theme song for our prom. When I look back now, it's pretty funny. You have all these teenagers singing that were just dust in the wind. Same old song, just a drop of water in an endless sea. All we do crumbles to the ground. Though we refuse to see dust in the wind, all we are is dust in the wind. Once a month, I'm part of a mentoring program at Youth Hope. Youth Hope is one of our Go Team partners. And five guys from Edgewood, that kind of sounds like a hamburger chain, right? Join a total of 20 other guys. um, And we get together and we meet with third grade boys who attend a school in East Moline. Let me give you the backstory. At this school in East Moline, they've identified 20 boys who really struggle with showing respect. They struggle paying attention. Some of them have home situations that are really, really hard. So these boys are having a hard time learning. And the teachers, the counselors, the social workers, the principal, everyone involved, they don't really know how to help these boys. So you know what they did? They called Youth Hope. And they said, help. Now, Youth Hope is a Christ-centered, gospel-focused ministry. And we support them every month. So when you give to Edgewood, part of what you give goes to ministries like Youth Hope. They have a center here in Rock Island and one in Moline. Well, as part of this program, uh, they've called it MOVE, M-O-V-E, which stands for Men of Valor and excellence. And the main thing we try to teach these young men is respect. Here's the creed we go over each time. Men of valor are respected because they have the courage to respect others. And we start, we keep it very simple, start by respecting your parents and respecting your teachers. Well, this week the boys were asked asked to write down who their heroes were Moms, you'll be glad to know, many of them said their mom was their hero. But coming in, number one, were heroes like Spider-Man and Batman, Ant-Man. I don't even know who Ant-Man is. (laughs) And Aquaman. So when I came back to the office Wednesday afternoon, I sat down, I was working on this sermon again, and I reflected on whether Adam could be considered a superhero. If so, I have a name for him. We could call him Dirt Man. (laughs) Dust Man. Why? Because he descended from dirt and dust. The word form means to fashion or shape from a substance like a potter taking clay and making this masterpiece out of it. The Hebrew word for man is Adam. Adam means man. The Hebrew word for ground is Adama. So the dust of the earth is embedded in Adam's name. It's part of who he is. It's as if God said he will be called earthling because he was taken from the earth. 
I like the story of the boy who asked his mom if he came from dust and that he asked if he would return to dust. The mom thought for a moment and said, yes, sweetheart, that's true. And the little boy said, well, I just looked under my bed and I saw a pile of dust. I can't tell who it is and whether he's coming or going. (laughs) Oh, perhaps in your mind, your mind has gone to the Psalm, Psalm 103, verse 14. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Once again, we've seen this throughout Genesis. There is no room for evolution in this account. Jehovah Elohim deliberately made Adam from the inanimate dust. Humans didn't come from some primordial soup that stewed for millions of years, starting this random process that somehow led to life. Oh, would you notice next that we're created with dignity? Adam is the first dirt man. He can't stand, he can't move, he can't talk, he can't think, he can't sing, he can't remember, he can't do anything. Why? He's not alive yet. Until God bent down and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Consider how tender that is. Adam opened his eyes for the first time. He looked around. He stood up and he beheld the world that God had created for him. Adam's body came from the earth, but his breath came from Jehovah Elohim. The Lord God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Don't miss, don't miss how tender that moment must have been. How warm. God formed, Jehovah Elohim formed Adam intentionally and intricately, and now we see how he was made intimately. Someone said it like this, the Yahweh Elohim who had just used his mouth to speak the universe into existence now stoops down and gets face to face with this lump of dust. His word created galaxies and his breath gives life as the creator who came close to his creation. Are you worshiping yet? It's beautiful. After our daughter Lydia was born, we left the hospital. We didn't have very good insurance, and so we weren't even there for a full day. And we stopped by Beth's parents' house, and so Lydia's less than a day old, and we're at her parents' house when Lydia had a choking event. Uh, We couldn't find one of those blue suction things. Well, Beth's dad was a doctor, and he noticed something was wrong, and she was turning gray. And he held her gently in his big hands, and he put his mouth over Lydia's mouth, and he sucked out some mucus. And then he breathed into her lungs, 
thus saving her life. She's married to Jamie. They have three boys now. In a similar way, when the athletic trainer performed CPR in DeMar Hamlin, his heart was not beating. He didn't necessarily breathe life into him, but he kept him alive. Now, we should make sure and express our thanks, right, to athletic trainers and first responders and medical professionals. There are some right here in this room. Let's just give them a hand for all that they do. Right? You caught the irony, these multi-million dollar football players and these athletic trainers who make far less did something so important. And it struck me after that is that's what they do all the time, everywhere, especially our first responders. We also need to stop and thank God. Remember all the prayers that went up? Uh, We got to make sure and thank God for how he answered those prayers. Now, these illustrations that I just shared are very powerful, but boy, they fall so far short of the miracle of God creating dirt man from the dust and breathing a soul into him and became a living creature, literally means a living soul. By the way, it's actually more accurate. Instead of saying we possess souls, it's probably better to say we are souls. Incidentally, have you ever noticed when a plane crashes or a ship sinks, those who die are referred to as souls? Somebody was reading the book of Genesis. Genesis 1.27 says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. We are not the result of some coincidental cosmic accident. You have been made with dignity, with value, with worth and purpose. You are more than matter because you matter to the Almighty. Psalm 100, verse 3, Know that the Lord is God. He is God. It is He who made us, and we are His. Psalm 139, 14 adds that we've been fearfully and wonderfully made, intricately woven together in our mother's womb. And that's why we stand up for the preborn. And that's why we celebrate the sanctity of life here at Edgewood. Friends, we come from dust and we've been created with dignity. These two truths are found together throughout Scripture. Uh, Let me take us to Job 33, verse 6. I too was pinched off from a piece of, listen for it, clay. Verse 4 of Job 33, the Spirit of God has made me and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Ray Pritchard has some great insight. Your value does not lie in your body or in the things you do with your body. Your value comes from the life God gave you. Apart from the breath of life, you wouldn't survive even one more second. If God should remove his hand from you, you would cease to exist and your body would quickly return to the dust. 
As you read through Genesis, it's so clear that gender is assigned by our creator at creation. God created us as male or female. And sadly, according to a national study, the State of Theology survey conducted this past September, I'm pausing on purpose because we really need to hear what I'm going to share next. 37% of American evangelicals believe gender is a choice. One in five, 20% affirm gender fluidity. Now, in our response to our cultural confusion on this topic, we took an entire message in mid-November, we called that Gender Matters, and we made this primary point. In God's good design, he created everyone as male or female. Now, Edgewood members will have the opportunity to vote on adopting a proposed addition to our statement of faith and covenant regarding human sexuality and gender. Now, we don't do that often, add things to our statement of faith and covenant. About 12 years ago, Pastor Brown led the church to adopt a statement on marriage, that marriage is between one man and one woman for life. I appreciate his leadership on that. The vote for members will take place at our annual meeting on Sunday, February 5th at 2 p.m. And there's copies of this statement. If you were here during that sermon, I read this at the end of that message, but we thought you might want a copy as well. They're out at the Welcome Center, and they're also posted out in the lobbies. Friends, we're also commissioned with duties. Life is to be lived under Jehovah Elohim's lordship and design. Genesis 1.28 says we're to be fruitful and increase in number. We've done a pretty good job on that one, right? Our world has hit now 8 billion people. In Genesis 2.15, Adam was put in the garden to work it and to keep it. More about that next weekend. So God created every person on purpose and put us in a place to live out his purposes. Number two, God put us in the place we're in to live out his purposes. Look at verse 8. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. The word planted means to start, to set in order. The garden was more like this park with an abundance of trees. Eden means paradise, delight, or pleasure. The word put means Jehovah Elohim placed Adam in a specific place just as he does with us. By the way, the Garden of Eden was a real place, not some imaginary or metaphorical concept. Well, let's consider how God does that with us. You live where you live so you can live on purpose for his purposes with your neighbor. You have gone through things in your own life, some of it deeply painful, and God wants to use that so his purposes can be shared with other people. Students, 
You go to school where you do so you can live on mission, on purpose, with your classmates on campus. If you're homeschooled, it's to serve your siblings. Consider your job. You work where you work so God can do his work through you. And if he wants you in another place, he'll move you to that place. Another act of grace when God created this garden home for man to dwell in when he planted an orchard of trees that were pleasant to look at and their fruit was pleasing to eat. God is the majestic creator and the majestic gardener. He brings all things to life and he causes them to grow. The trees were fine looking and functional for food. Would you notice the tree of life? That appears 11 times in scripture. I was reflecting on that. Jesus died on a tree to bring us life. Revelation 2, 7, so we know the tree of life is in the book of Revelation. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is the source of the serpent's temptation of Eve. This could be translated as the tree of evil enjoyment. Now, I'm not sure we can call Adam a superhero because his sin plunged us all into sin. Dirt man, let us down. But Jesus, the God man, came to lift us up. Are you aware that the Bible refers to Jesus as the second Adam? 1 Corinthians 15, 47, check this. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. And so Jesus came to reverse the curse on the human race by bearing all our sins on himself when he died on the cross and he rose again on the third day. Well, let's watch the Google Earth video again. But only this time we're going to reverse it. It's going to start here at Edgewood and then go out to the world because God created every person on purpose and he put us in a place to live out his purposes. Matthew 28, 19, God has called his people to go with the gospel to the whole world, to make disciples of all nations. And God calls certain people to go and he calls the rest of us to send those who go while we live out his purposes in this place. You know, after the resurrection, Jesus gave his spirit to his followers. I can't wait to show you this. Genesis 2-7, so think Genesis 2-7. And now, let's go to Jesus' time with the disciples after his resurrection. Listen to these words. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, Even so, I am sending you. Watch this. And when he had said this, he what? Breathed on them. And he said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. By breathing the Spirit on them, he empowered them to fulfill their purpose of taking the gospel to the whole globe. 